0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of Beyond the Green Line. Today is all about the touchy subjects of consulting communities and engaging with stakeholders when the big developments and projects come to town, or the farm as the case may be. Hi, and welcome. Buckle up for a new episode of Beyond the Green Line the only podcast hooking you up for a virtual coffee date with some of the leading change makers, industry experts and everyday activists in environmental and agricultural sciences. So pop in your headphones, go for a walk and get ready for inspiration, ideas, insights and real life stories beyond the green line we balance along. My guest today is Warwick Giblin, a veteran in the environmental management space and one of my long-term mentors who I value greatly. Warwick has 40 years senior executive experience in environmental management in both government with National Parks and Wildlife Service in Sydney Water and corporations, Waste Management International and Waste Management New Zealand. Warwick is currently Managing Director of Oz Environmental Proprietary Limited We provide high-end techno-legal and strategic advice to farmers, rural councils and traditional owners to protect their interests in relation to proposed energy and mining projects. So get comfy because today's chat could get somewhat contentious. Hi Warwick, I'm looking forward to our chat today.
1: Wow, I love that build-up there, Chanel. I hope I can deliver accordingly.
0: (laughs) I'm sure that the conversation is going to be really good today, as always, (laughs) but it should be fun. So let's start off by, I guess, firstly, just talking through your background and where you've come from in your career.
1: Well, my roots to my professional journey really started on the land as a young boy. I was a farmer's son and I spent oodles and oodles of hours on my own in the bush, you know, and through that you get an understanding and awareness and appreciation of, of nature and all that it has to offer. And it was that awareness, I suppose, and that initial awakening that dominated throughout all my education. And I've been blessed that I've been able to turn it into a profession and I've loved the journey.
0: So you, you work a lot in the the western area of New South Wales. Is that where you grew up?
1: I was born and bred between Orange and Parks. Great little place called Manildra, centre of the universe. And, and, yes, yeah, so I and my roots are in the Bush in the West, and I just love being out there.
0: Yeah, same here. So now let's look at um, a typical rural or regional community, an Australian one. So, in your experience, how does a community usually become aware of a major project or a large development that's going through the approvals process?
1: Well, it could be any number of ways, Chanel. I mean, it could be so a knocking on the door, on your door, I'd be the developer probably. It may be through social media, you know, the the bush grapevine, so to speak, here's what's going on. Could be a letter. And so it can be any number of ways. Mm. So I guess
0: it can, it can be either a formal approach or it could
1: be through
0: rumour or that's going on in the community. It, yeah.
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: And when this happens, What sorts of emotions and questions are usually the first ones to show up?
1: Well, I guess you can understand people often have their little piece of paradise in the bush somewhere, you know, their farm, or might be out of suburbs of, of a city. Yes. So usually the first thing is uncertainty. And what does that mean for us? And the emotions attached to that can range along the distress spectrum quite frankly in many cases with my work and my clients there are challenges regarding people's good uh, well-being you know there's quite often physical and mental challenges arising from the distress people feel with what's in store for them particularly where there's a major development proposed close by you know because for them they they concerned about whether, what are the benefits? Will they receive benefits or will they have costs imposed on them by the development? So that's the dilemma.
0: Yeah, and I guess in a lot of these cases also, these could be multi-generational farms or properties and therefore there is even more emotion attached to the place and the lifestyle and you know, particular landmarks on, on these
1: properties. Yes, yeah, for example, I'm working for... A community group and there's a couple of people in that group who have had a land in their family name for over 150 years.
0: Yeah, oh, wow. That would be hard. That would be really hard to see that change. I mean, change is always hard, isn't it? But yeah.
1: But it does, you know, and, and we could talk about this as we go, but the thing is these, these folk, they are disadvantaged in this scheme of How does this development proposal proceed and how do they retain a voice, etc.?
0: So what should a landholder do then when they learn that there is a major development proposed for next door or just down the road?
1: I think the first thing is to build a support network around you, your local community. I would strongly recommend that people also get professional advice, namely environmental practitioner advice. As I've said, people in this situation are very disadvantaged.
0: Is that because they don't know what to do? They don't have the right advice. They don't have the right experiences. They've never done this before. Is that what you mean? Correct.
1: There's right? four key elements, in my view, why they're disadvantaged. One is, generally speaking, they don't have tolerance or whoever it is. People usually lead busy lives. They don't have the time. They don't have the technical knowledge or capacity. They're good at many things, but how familiar are they with the Environmental Planning Assessment Act and the assessment and determination process, right? Mm. The fourth one, the third one is compared to the developer, usually they had they have limited economic capacity. And so that's, can, that is really a major challenge. And then lastly, they rarely have the political clout that the developer has. So on all those four fronts, the f- folk that I work for, generally speaking, are, are disadvantaged and it's a very unlevel playing field for them.
0: Yeah, and it ends up needing to become, as you said, community and passion driven, which I guess that, that passion I've seen takes them an awfully long way and sways an awful lot of people and politicians and, and you know, other communities. However, at the same time, you can end up Looking maybe a bit—I don't want to say crazy—but sometimes it comes across as they're a little bit fanatical when they're actually not. Uh, They—they're just trying to learn as they go and protect their land and and their
1: communities. And inherently, you know, rural folk tend to be very conscious of their community setting and the community network. And when it comes to these major developments, often. It means you have to be courageous. You have to be brave. You There is the risk of upsetting neighbours, other neighbours or families. Within families, there can be challenges and, and disagreements between parties. So it's a quite a potentially fraught subject area. Hmm.
0: So in your opinion, is that initial community consultation usually done well by the proponent of a project?
1: Uh, this is a bit of a holy horse of mine, Chanel. Thank you for raising it. Well, look, I think, I think generally it's not done as well as it might. Now, really the issue here is when a proponent announces a development, the company has already done its sums and done its design to maximize its advantage. It, it really understandably has a mindset of well, this is what this is what we're going to do. yet it's been designed by the proponent in many ways behind closed doors. So it seems to me a bit at odds with the fundamental premise of what stakeholder engagement and community consultation is all about. to then sort of retrofit that task down the track somewhat. Some months down the track, when the community when the community is getting very concerned, but generally the proponent will have done what's called it'll announce project, then it will defend the project, and that's the complete opposite to what you want uh, in terms of effective, respectful stakeholder engagement. In, in summary, I said oh, I think I, I think the stakeholder engagement with community consultation happens way too late in the process.
0: Hmm. And a lot of communities end up feeling railroaded and not listened to.
1: Oh, yes, yes. I mean, everywhere you turn, I mean, if you look at the rural communities across slopes, particular Western New South Wales at the moment, you know, clearly we need to decarbonise our, our energy generation system. There's no doubt about that. But with all the renewable energy zones, of which there'll be five, there's lots of renewable energy projects planned, plus major transmission lines to connect into those renewable energy zones. And that's going to impact a lot of uh, rural lands. Now, what sort of voice will the rural community have on these matters?
0: Yeah, because at the moment and over the last several years with these projects coming through the pipeline, we have been seeing a lot of uh, community meetings, you know, committees that have been forming, and there's there's been a lot of show, I would say, of community consultation. But it's very one-sided, the, the project, um, you know, the client in our respects telling the communities this is what's been happening, this is where we are in the process. No true consultation, nothing has really changed throughout that process, it's just information and somewhat of a bombardment of information. So is this a new trend that you're you're also noticing in other areas?
1: To be honest, I think it's pretty much as long as the ep and Act's been around This has been the process, and I think it is a fundamental flaw in a system where if this is meant to be for public good and in the public interest, that's a phrase that the Department of Planning often uses in its determinations. This project is, quote, in the public interest, end quote. Well, it begs the question about what say has the public been allowed to have how has that been factored into the decision making, into the design of the project, or or is this whole social impact assessment, stakeholder engagement, a bit of a, a, a rather tokenistic?
0: Mm. So, what does good community engagement look like to you? Have you seen any great examples?
1: Well, again, it really depends. You're only going to get good stakeholder engagement and community consultation. I think Chanel. If if the proponent genuinely feels that that will be beneficial to the the outcome of the project, and I I do I am aware of one example where I in particular where I think the proponent has done a very good job, and I'm happy to name it. That's for that's the new Cobar mine project underground project, pretty much in the town of of Cobar, and in my view the consultants, social impact consultants have done a good job on that. And they why why was it good? Because they did some assessments based on the people that live there, on the communities that live there and their issues. And so they did a good job identifying the issues and challenges. And I think that was very transparent in, in the EIS. By the by though, I have to say, I think the I think there was a missed opportunity in the consent conditions not picking up the granular nature and the personalised information really that that the EIS identified in terms of community consultation.
0: Yeah, and I guess you've really touched on it there with community consultation is often done by companies or people from external, um, from outside of the community that's being affected. So therefore, to actually do that that piece of consultation and engagement in you know, a way that is going to be effective and end up with the correct information and you know the correct emotions coming through from the community. The the company really needs to find that way to to break down the barriers of the fact that they are from out of town because quite often they can be seen as working for the proponent of, you know, for the the development. So is there some way that a rural community can maybe Work together to have an effective voice and and help facilitate this work uh, that that you've seen work.
1: Well, I think what's important is openness and transparency, not just involving the proponent, the developer, but I think also providing transparency and information back to the Department of Planning Environment itself. So the assessment staff in the department who will be examining all this material again, I think you know, there's accountability all around. and if community groups feel things are going off track a bit a little bit, then I think it's only prudent to you know make draw the department's attention to to what's going on. But at the end of the day, yes, this is about the sharing of power and truth to voice. And, and ensuring the local community has a voice, not only that it has a voice, but that, that voice is listened to and acted upon.
0: Mm, and changes actually do happen based on what's said, yeah. And,
1: and I have seen, uh, you know, I have seen another client where I'm, I'm working. Um, we have engaged with the developer and the developer has been responsive to the feedback we have provided. So. Certainly, uh, we cover this later if you like, but you know, community groups sometimes wonder should we engage or should we just slam the door? Mm. I, my advice is there's no harm in talking. And I think as long as the dialogue is respectful both ways, then there's a lot to be gained by listening, communicating, and learning. Mm.
0: I guess we saw that a lot with the Lock the Gates campaign where well, that was definitely shutting out. And I don't believe that that has ever been resolved, really. It's you know definitely an ongoing issue. So when do you usually get involved with the projects and how do you advocate for council, community or individuals?
1: I usually get involved pretty early on, you know, particularly if it's landholders who might be immediately adjoining a development or dare I say it, a development will encroach on their land. I mean, it may well be a compulsory acquisition matter like mm-hmm. it is for major transmission lines, for example. So usually early on, then often it's on quite a journey. You know, it might be from then through to examining the EIS and helping prepare a submission response to the EIS. It may also be peering for the client at the Independent Planning Commission hearing. And certainly, aside from that, two other actions. One is engaging proactively with the developer and lastly, engaging proactively with the Department of Planning and Environment.
0: And can you tell me about some of your past advocacy projects where landholders have been able to conduct productive negotiations with the developer, resulting in both parties feeling like they're happy with the outcome?
1: Yes. The couple of cases I could elaborate on, you now one is are six farmers along the Lachlan River Forbes, mm-hmm. and the Forbes, Actual Energy plan to put in a, a new transmission line, and so again there was the threat of compulsory acquisition on that matter, but we were able to engage with the proponent, and we were able to through negotiations. With the developer, come to uh, a meaningful and agreed outcome around the terms and conditions for the easement, as well as compensation for the easement being on their land. So that, that worked well. And also, a landholder in the west of the state, there was a proposed mine, and we've had extensive negotiations and discussions and come to a good agreement where the farmer retains a voice and there's been, in effect, sharing of power. And I think that's been a a wonderful example of how parties can work cooperatively.
0: So in that situation, is there um, an ongoing management plan where the farmer of that particular property does actually get a really, well, 50-50 or a good amount of saying what happens with that land that's uh, been acquired?
1: Yeah, so and there's confidentiality provisions, as you might imagine, on this. But it's the the sufficient checks and balances in the agreement whereby the landholder will continue to have a voice to government authorities as and where required. So if if the landholder has any concerns or complaints, there is a process for resolving those and throughout process, um, you know there is a means for a landholder to in fact not be silenced, in effect, not be silenced by the agreement.
0: Yeah, sure. So I guess the key takeaways for productive negotiations on both sides, both parties, we can say some of them are probably not particularly useful to to just shut down any conversation and 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 stop having those those negotiations. What other sorts of key takeaways do you think there are?
1: Well, I think as difficult as it may be for that communication to be effective, people need to be respectful and keep their emotions under control, which can be very difficult sometimes if you're a landholder and you think you're going to have costs outsourced onto you. you know, that That is very challenging and that's why community support is vital. But I think standing up, and having courage in your convictions and having, as I say, professional advice to help you how to do these things and, you know, who to communicate with in the Department of Planning or, you know, if it means we've got to go to the CEO of the proponent, then we do that as well. But I think to be truly effective, landholders and community groups really need someone in their corner to help guide them and assist them and encourage them because, as I say, it can be a pretty tough journey.
0: Yeah, and uh, what I hear a lot from communities is that they feel that when a a major project or development comes to town, whilst they might have some sort of a say in where some of the ancillary stuff is put or who gets employed, uh, maybe the percentages, the reality is that if it is such a big project, it's going to happen anyway. Now, this, this is a difficult thing for a lot of people, a lot of communities to to deal with um, yes. this understanding. Where do you sit on this?
1: Well, I think, to be honest, it's pretty obvious. Fundamentally, the planning assessment determination process, I think, is there to encourage, well, to, to facilitate and expedite development approvals. I don't think there's any two ways about it. And I do think with the rapid assessment framework, you know, what? why is the focus on rapid assessment? Why can't we have more transparent, robust assessment or uh, assessment that identifies and quantifies all the costs and benefits, particularly the costs that environmental, social, economic costs to get outsourced to the landholders? Mm. I, I, I do think it, it is a fact, generally speaking, most of these projects get up and get approved with with minimal changes. Yeah. I think people are quite entitled to be somewhat sceptical of the the capacity in the system for landholders and others who are disadvantaged to have a, a have a fair voice.
0: Yeah, and I think that's it's a, it's a very fair comment um, that there's not very many projects that get knocked back or drastically changed. Even when it comes to what's being written in the EIS sometimes, that still doesn't have a huge sway on, on the, the design of the projects all of the time, which I think is a flaw in the, the entire process.
1: Yes, yes. And it begs the question, you know, maybe for another time, but there's a challenge here for the consultants who write EISs as well about what is their role and how do they pursue their professional judgments? And how do they respond to potential pressures from developers to amend some of the wording or the language in EISs, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think uh, we need, never mind a more, fo- a more focused, rapid assessment. I just think we need a more open, transparent, robust assessment system that gives heed to the disadvantage.
0: So recently, the Sydney Morning Herald uh, published an article spruiking the New South Wales state government's planned 1.2 billion dollars spend to fast-track transmissions projects for renewables in the regions. Now, this is including my home region of the New England. Whilst you and I, as you said before, do both agree that rapid decarbonisation of our energy system is imperative, you have a pretty strong opinion about how big projects have been treating landholders and rural communities since the Department of Planning and Environment brought in the rapid assessment framework, as we've discussed. So let's talk about what's about to happen in the future and um, what has already started happening in your experience around this.
1: Well, you know, we now have five identified renewable energy zones in the state and the first two cabs off the rank, essentially, are the New England region. Your region yep. and the central West Arana region and Dubbo and Kunabarabran and the like. This is huge potential changes to to not only the land use with wind and solar farms, like in the, the central West Arana, there's 20 projects already. I'm hearing that capacity in that res may well be doubled plus you're going to have you know major need to connect to transmission lines so for rural communities there's going to be the potential of some substantial change and disruption and how folk will respond to this i guess remains to be seen
0: yeah and all of this assumingly they will go through the rapid assessment framework or the majority of these projects so why was the framework actually brought in? And we've already discussed the fact that you think it's a bad thing from, I guess, both a quality and environmental and, and community point of view. So why? why? Why do we have it? Do you know?
1: I can make a fair guess at it, uh, Chanel. Many, many of the uh, developers were concerned at what they saw as delays in the system. And that led to great uncertainty and the loss of economic development in the state. And, you know, there was pressure exerted by the development industry, including the New South Wales Minerals Council, I might say, to see the process expedited or fast tracked. And there was a commitment made by the government to essentially do that.
0: Yeah. I guess uh, it's all wrapped up into economic recovery from things like COVID as well as to why the government feels like this is a need uh, for for the state.
1: I mean, I think also we we need to scrutinise the validity of the arguments about how all this extra development is good for the state. We need to be careful here about whether it's good for the developer or whether it's actually good for the state, you know. A lot of these major developments, they talk about all these jobs, yeah. structure jobs. You know, wind farm, big wind farm might be four hundred construction jobs, few years. Well, begs the question: how many of those jobs will go to locals? And can like say there won't be too many because the contract, the, the developer will bring in their own contractor, who provides, you know, most of the workers almost all the workers, to do the job. So I, I think that is one somewhat of a myth about it would give jobs to locals.
0: Yeah, there's there's quotas um, around the you know, percentage or number of jobs that are supposed to go to locals. But what um, I, I've seen and what I'm hearing from a lot of uh, regional communities, what's happened in the past, is that the quotas might seem like they're quite robust and, and a good amount of the construction workforce but in reality they're all filled up the the entire quota is taken up at the very very beginning of the project and then by the time that you're getting into the main bulk of the project or you know finishing stages there's not so many people being employed from the local community because that was all done in the, the early works packages for example yes so i think it's it sounds like it's a good idea and it's in re- but in reality, there's a, there's so many challenges with actually doing that with local communities because the contractors who come in, you know, they're big companies, international companies a lot of the time, and they, I believe, don't actually want to upskill the local workforce. That capacity building piece is just not in their vocabulary at the moment.
1: It adds more cost. To it, pro- it does.
0: It adds more cost. It adds more time and it adds potentially more problems with quality and rework uh, that have, you know that go into this with untru- untrained or inexperienced yeah. workers. Yeah, so there's, there's that issue. And then another issue that I've been hearing from the Narrabri local community in particular is around the fact that it's fantastic if the, all of these young kids do get trained up in construction jobs, but then what are they going to do once the project's finished? Do you think they're going to stick around in Narrabri when they won't be able to get any work at their skill level? You know, the council can only take on so many for doing construction works in the local the local shire. So are we then going to see a fairly large exit of all of these skilled people from the region anyway?
1: Yes. Absolutely. All those comments are, are very valid.
0: Hmm. So getting back to transmissions projects and renewables. Yes. Should maybe we be focusing more on community or locally based regeneration generation and use, therefore avoiding some of the need for the building of new interconnectors?
1: Well, thank you for that question. I mean, I'm pretty excited by that question, really, because I think there's enormous opportunity in this state age, particularly with battery storage and the like, to not only generate locally, but to use it locally. I see that we're likely to have more and more community based electricity generation and use over time. I do wonder whether we are simply repeating a previous period of economic development in terms of our electricity generation and distribution, whether we're simply duplicating that without thinking outside the square, so to speak, about how perhaps we could do it more efficiently and more effectively. I'd, I think it won't be long before roof tiles have embedded, you know, solar panels in them, you know, so the residential sector can pretty much look after itself terms of generating electricity and we'll all have batteries so to speak i yeah i think i think um, over time we may well question the huge amount of dollars that we're throwing into duplicating the major interconnectors and also you know spare a thought for the changing to the rural landscape where you're going to have ever more transmission lines
0: Mm.
1: and the like i think this yeah i think this is. uh, a missed opportunity in many ways.
0: Yeah, and I think there's, I guess, maybe some some issues that we're going to be seeing in another 15, 20, 25 years that we'll we'll see as mistakes when they come around. And that is things like wind farms and the amount of embodied energy that's gone into actually building the turbines and the not only the waste streams that come from these things once they're decommissioned, but have they actually generated enough energy to even cover what was put into making them. Yes. This is a huge issue that I can see. Uh, are, are we just digging ourselves another hole?
1: Yes. Yes. No, that's right. Well, the full life cycle analysis mm. of these projects, uh, whether you look at it in terms of energy or whether you look at it of various metals or, or whatever. Yes. Huge, uh, hugely valid comments. And also how we go about uh, recovering and recycling. Turbines are uh, the towers or the blades. And I was only reading yesterday where someone is, some company is working on finding, you know, the, the secondary life for turbine blades and whatever. And they turn them into, they talk about surf skis.
0: <laughs> <laughs> surf skis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. It, I guess I find it strange though that we haven't learnt. We still haven't learnt. So, with the ISK or Infrastructure Sustainability Council of Australia, one of the things that they really push for with their accreditations is a decommissioning plan mm-hmm. be in place uh, at construction, or even be, you know before construction, so that we do have that full lifecycle analysis and we do know what we're doing at the end. But it seems like we ha- we still haven't actually implemented these across the majority of projects, and where we're running towards the end of the the life cycles that we will be running towards the end of the project life cycles and still don't know what to do with them and we'll be turning them into thousands and tens of thousands of satuskes.
1: Um <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> that was what you have smart
0: <laughs> <up>. Very true.
1: <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, and again this is, in terms of the determination of projects, you know, the consent conditions. What does the consent conditions currently say in there for you know the decommissioning phase of projects. In essence, it's all put off into the never never. It's all yes. put off in the future, and you know
0: it's a two hard basket.
1: Yeah, one of the big issues for councils on major renewable energy projects is what waste streams are going to be generated, even in the near term, and what implication does that have for the life of council-run uh, waste facilities? And who's going to pay for the extension or expansion or duplication of that waste facility? Who pays? Is the proponent going to pay or rate payers going to have?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I guess history tells us it's rate payers.
1: (laughs) Yes. Uh, There you go.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time today, Warwick. Uh, That wraps up this episode of Beyond the Green Line. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Chanel Gleason-Willie and I've been your host today.
1: Thank you so much, Chanel.
0: If you're interested to continue with this conversation, look out for our conversation series. Do You Hear What I Hear? Engaging Communities and Conversation Series, Australia's Transition to a Renewable Energy Future. Are We Achieving a Just Transition and Community Experiences Along the Way? You can also check out the excellent podcast series, Communities of the Frontline by the Sydney Environment Institute or the recently released report, Renewables and Rural Australia, Community Experiences in New South Wales by the Australia Institute and Sydney Environment Institute. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Green Line, brought to you by Moss Environmental. Subscribe to our podcast for your weekly invitation to join the conversation. Until next time, keep
1: thinking green.